Stories, the Secret Movie Club Podcast 89. Today we're going to be talking about when comedians move into art films or more serious fare. Interestingly, this is something that's been going on from the beginning. Charlie Chaplin made a drama called A Woman of Paris in 1923 because he really just wanted to show people that he could also be a director of dramas. And it goes on to this very day. We were doing it because we did two of Adam Sandler's art house movies, Paul Thomas Anderson's Punch Drunk Love and the Softy Brothers' Uncut Gems. But we're going to talk 360 degrees about it. Who is with us today? Hey, it's Daniel. Hey, it's me, Carly Cruz, the People's Champion, coming in to you live from Texas. In your creepy cabin again. Yeah, this is my this is my family home, my ancestral. <laughs> it's a real fixer-upper. Hello, America. I'm, I'm, I'm tired. That's Edwin Cesar Gomez. It is wonderful to have everybody here. So by the time you hear this, tonight uh, we are going to be showing Bonnie and Clyde and Night Moves, both on 35mm. And it's interesting. I didn't necessarily realize this. It must have been my subconscious. But there are three key collaborators who did both movies. Arthur Penn, of course, the director. Dee Dee Allen, the editor. And I'm a huge Dee Dee Allen fan. She's one of the few Hollywood editors who you can kind of sense she's the editor on a picture, but not in a bad way. And like she only makes the material better. And Gene Hackman, who is in both those movies. Then Saturday, we are going to be doing Dumb and Dumber on 35 at the Million Dollar Theater with the Farrelly brothers and co-screenwriter Bennett Yellen in attendance. So it's going to be a live Q&A, which is going to happen before the movie, I believe. But don't hold me to that. They may decide to go to dinner and do it afterwards. But Dumb and Dumber is a short movie, and it's only one movie that night. So you can come meet the Farrelly brothers, talk to the Farrelly brothers. That event is actually selling really well. We will be capping it at 500. It's a 2,000-seat theater. So at 500, that guarantees everyone plenty of distance from everybody else, just so you know. And then in the next week, we are starting our February 2022. As Edwin was lamenting before we went to recording, it is our love month, our Valentine's month, our love, romance, emotion month. But what I love to do when we do that is we look at it from all 360 degrees. So it's not just rom-coms where someone has to run to the airport at the end of the movie. We are showing many, many, including Natural Born Killers we're showing, which is sort of a very perverse rom-com, I guess, if you want to look at it that way. We are doing American Movie for Mr. Daniel Ott's birthday. He chose it. He programmed it. It is doing incredible. You could also look at that as a love story between two really good friends or a familial love story between the lead and his uncle. We're doing Umbrellas of Cherbourg, an operetta or all sung. And so it's going to be a lot of stuff. But we're going to start off with our next John Ford movie on 35 again, Technicolor, She Wore a Yellow Ribbon, the second of the Cavalry trilogy. Then on Thursday, we're doing Frank Capra's It Happened One Night with Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert, often considered the first screwball comedy, a movie so popular that when Clark Gable showed up without an undershirt in the movie, undershirt sales in America plummeted, making people realize the effect that really loved stars could have on sales all up to this day, actually. But I love It Happened One Night. I love Frank Capra. I love Frank Capra. And if you've never seen this one, here's your chance to see it on 35. As always, you can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com or podcast secretmovieclub.com. You can find out everything we're doing at secretmovieclub.com. God willing, next week, we are going to make a big announcement about something that is happening the first weekend in May. I am very excited about it. I just need to dot the I's and cross the T's. But that is coming up. I will just say, as Edwin said, actually, I'll I'll take what Edwin said in our group conversations. Uh, 
get ready for a road trip because it won't be here in Los Angeles, but it will be within driving distance of Los Angeles. I am very excited about it. It's going to be a little vacation for everybody who wants to get out of the city with some great movies. Also, if you are a movie maker, we are going to do our next Open Mic Shorts Night. I believe it's Wednesday, February 23rd. Our first one, which happens this Wednesday, it'll already have happened by the time you hear this. We had so many submissions that we broke it up into two parts the same night, each a 90-minute program. Filmmakers are going to be there. So if you're a filmmaker and you just want to build community, you want to maybe meet your next cinematographer or composer or actor, uh, we want people to create. And we want Secret Movie Club to also be part of getting people, you know, meeting each other and creating and the next American renaissance or international renaissance. So please submit your short. However, we're adding something to our February Open Mic Shorts Night, which is if you're willing to take this challenge, the winner is going to get year passes, 2022 passes to everything we do, two tickets to everything we do. The theme for February, as I said, is love. You can interpret that however you want. You can make a movie about hate, and we'd accept it because it makes sense. It's got to be under 10 minutes. It's got to have been made either in January of 2022 or February of 2022. We want things being made. And if you submit that and we show it and it gets voted as the best of those shorts, you will get two tickets to every event we do in 2022. So we hope you'll take up that challenge. The more important than the two tickets is just uh, let's get creating again. I actually have a short that I'm going to be editing that I am excited about. There you go. Enough. Let's get to the main topic. One of the interesting things when we talk about topics to come is Connor Lloyd Cruz often has the best ideas. In fact, he has almost all the ideas. And he says, what about this? What about that? Or he and I will have a conversation. And something we realized in January was we were showing two Adam Sandler movies from the beginning of his career, which I love. I love both those movies, Billy Madison and Happy Gilmore. I was actually talking to somebody at the New Beverly recently, and they were like, I love Adam Sandler movies. And Paul Thomas Anderson said, I love Adam Sandler movies. So a lot of people loved his early comedies. But as Adam Sandler went on, he started to take some chances. He did Paul Thomas Anderson's Punch Drunk Love. He most recently did what's possibly my favorite Adam Sandler performance. Uh, he played uh, Howie, Howard Ratner, in uh, the Softy Brothers' Uncut Gems. But he's also been in a James L. Brooks movie, Spanglish. He was also in the Noah Baumbach picture, which I haven't seen. I need to see the Meyerowitz story or the Meyerholt stories. That's really good. I really love the, the Meyerowitz story. It's him being funny. But more calmly. It's really incredible. I, I love his performance in that movie. Spanglish sucks, though. <laughs> so I've, I've heard good things about the Bombach. You know, many comedians have done this. Very famously, Robin Williams, when he did Dead Poet Society for Peter Weir, really set a template that was actually copied by Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey did the Truman Show for Peter Weir as a way of transitioning from being the sort of rapid-fire comic to hopefully getting put into a more serious or arty or experimental or challenging fare. And uh, there are people all over the world who have done this. So we're going to talk about it today. Yeah, well, Jim Carrey's one of mine because when I was a kid, Ace Ventura was one of my favorite movies ever. Maybe my favorite movie. I'm sure we all liked Jim Carrey when we were, we were younger, but me and Daniel were at like the right perfect age to be there for that beginning of the Jim Carrey, like his 1994, 95, when like Dumb and Dumber, The Mask, Ace Ventura, and Batman Forever all came out within like two years. When he like just rose meteorically from in living color to superstar. And then I followed him, obviously the Truman Show, but then Eternal Sunshine later when I was a teenager was also a favorite movie. And there, 
you know, markedly different, obviously, <laughs> Ace Ventura and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. The best comedy movies and the best comedy actors are having to do everything that dramatic actors and dramatic movies are doing, but also having to be funny. So it's almost maybe tougher, I think, in a weird way that people don't give it credit for. They don't give credit, just making a good comedy. Yeah, making a good comedy and a good comedy performance, because the best comedy performances, you're as empathetic to the characters and feeling as much from the characters as you would with a serious role, but you're also laughing. And to be able to do both it's tough. It's interesting. There's almost an inverse mathematical equation, which is that the genres that immediately get the most respect, and by the way, I love every genre. This isn't putting any genre down, but the genres that get the least respect, I think, are often the hardest to do. And it's just interesting to me how people do that. Like to make a truly funny movie, a truly great action film, or a truly great horror film. I think is much harder than to make a passable drama. In American culture, at least, I don't think it's true in all cultures, but in American culture, sometimes the clown or the person who makes us laugh, at least cinematically in terms of movies, critics and film culture will denigrate those movies until they get reappraised like 30 years later as masterpieces or something. And it, it seems a little backwards to me. It seems like we would have learned by now maybe not to do that. But. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what that is. I wonder if that's just a situation of because these types of things are the way that they're taking themselves seriously is kind of different than things that are just fully serious. And so people are sort of responding to it based on the execution and the sort of presentation of the thing. People sort of dictate like you get someone like Carrie or Adam Sandler and they're sort of when they're known by the thing, when they take a chance, some people look at it as like, oh, they're, they're failing at this thing, so they want to make a swap to get into this other crowd. When I think in reality, they're, they're actors wanting to you know try new things in their craft and new ways to express their art. Because you look at like Carrie's filmography in the 90s, which is like Connor said, insane, but he had hit after hit after hit. Like he did Ace Ventura, Mass, Dumb and Dumber, Batman Forever, and Ace Ventura sequel, The Cable Guy, Liar, Liar, and then did The Truman Show. So like he can do, he could have done whatever he want. There was no like stagnant period. He like made the conscious decision to move over and for the better. Cause I think on top of Eternal Sunshine, Truman Show, Man on the Moon, the horror masterpiece, How the Grinch Stole Christmas and The Majestic are all like really kind of staggering achievements of dramatic acting. But then he moves so effortlessly back into Bruce Almighty to be him, the sort of the thing that we know. I think it's such an interesting talent to be able to move between genres like that so effectively, being known so adamantly as this thing and being so good at this thing to then take a chance on something. I also think about, I don't know if you guys watched the TV show Kidding that he starred in, that uh, Michelle Gondry directed. It was really good. It got canceled uh, in its second season, so I don't think it really got a wrap up. But it's essentially about a, a children's show host who suffers a big tragedy and sort of deals with the fallout of his mental and physical health within that but moving from that into like the sonic movies which are him in his 90s like cartoon canon again which is really cool to see because you kind of get every few years this best of all world things and regardless of how you feel about sonic the movie it's like very cool to see jim carrey back in like full that mode he's great in it yeah he's awesome the two that i i think about a lot in terms of my lifetime bill murray is one of them it's the same type of thing there's a nostalgia for bill murray the comedian growing up from his 80s and 90s stuff but then i think of i saw lost in translation at a pretty young age and didn't really get it and i was confused because i expected a comedy similar to eternal sunshine where it hits you weird because you expect one thing because of who's associated with it and then you're sort of taken aback by what it was instead 
And I think Bill Murray's a, a very powerful performer in that. But when I was trying to think of newer people that are doing similar things, I think the most really interesting actor right now in that regard is Jonah Hill. He did, you know, a string of high school sex comedies and is, has this thing he's very well known for. And then did Moneyball, which he's very good in. Moneyball is like one of my favorite movies of the last decade. I'm not a sports guy, but I think the politics and concepts around sports are so interesting. And that movie makes you really interested, even if you don't know a thing about the sport being played, which I'm assuming if you know a ton about it, it's probably even more interesting. But he's so good in that. And then he sort of cycles between even roles. I think it was called War Dogs, which wasn't my cup of tea. It was like him and Miles Teller. I think it was a Todd Phillips movie. But he's just so deranged in it that it's like this really interesting performance on top of it all. And so he's one of those actors that kind of makes these interesting shifts and then does something like This is the End, where he's making fun of his Oscar nomination for Moneyball on top of it all. So there's sort of this meta commentary about it. And I think there's some he's got some interesting performances that I, I think have already happened and are coming uh, because of his decisions as an actor. Richard Pryor's uh, Blue Collar. 70s for Richard Pryor, he was on fire being like the hottest comedian stand-up comic uh, out there. And he made a couple of movies, you know, like Car Wash, uh, Silver Streak, that was one of them, and uh, a couple other ones, like Major. Next thing you know, in 1978, he did a film with Paul Schrader uh, with Blue Collar, and, and, and it's the first dramatic performance from, I think, from a stand-up comic to do a serious role in, in, in that movie. And I, I love, love Richard Pryor and Blue Collar, even though he gave Paul Schrader a hard time. I think it's one of his best performances that he's ever done. Uh, he gave everybody a hard time. Yeah, Richard Pryor was a notoriously tough personality. And Richard Pryor would later do it again in his semi-bio movie called Jojo Dancer, which is also another serious performance he's done, which is also really good. It's kind of surprising me that Richard Pryor only did like two serious roles, and that's it. That's all he's ever done. And from there on, he just stuck to his, what he's known best, you know? do things with Gene Wilder, do, like, comedies like Critical Condition, Harlem Nights, you know, stuff like that. But I, I honestly, I, I would have loved to see Richard Pryor do more uh, dramatic stuff, you know? Those two movies are killer, man. Those, like, probably the best roles he's ever done for himself. And uh, if you haven't seen Blue Collar, you should really watch that movie. It's insane what that man brings to the table for that movie. Yes, you played Blue Collar almost every day for a month at the theater, even whether it was related thematically to what we were showing or not. Because Blue Collar is Paul Schrader's greatest motion picture, but you won't freaking program it. Universal's got a print. It's a great print. You gotta freaking show it, man, because you won't do it. That's why I'm showing the tapes. So, audience, just so you know, I never put a fatwa on blue collar. We very well may do blue collar. We just haven't gotten it to it yet. Yeah, but you gotta but Edwin do it. Edwin likes to create fictional narratives that conform to his worldview that I have to accept because if I refuted them all the time, I'd be wasting 50% of my life. And when you remind me of the comment section on Blu-ray.com whenever there's a Criterion <laughs> release, and it's just, it's like all these movies coming out, and there's always, it doesn't matter what movies are coming out, there's always one person like, why aren't they putting in Dilbo 2, The Return? <laughs> this pattern goes all the way back to the start of cinema. Charlie Chaplin had these mega hits, not only his shorts, but then The Kid, I believe it was after The Kid, where, I mean, Charlie Chaplin was the most known film star in the world. 
everybody around the world was seeing his movies and he wanted to do something just as a director, just to show that he really was not just Charlie Chaplin, the actor, the clown or the vaudevillian, but the artist. And he made this movie called A Woman in Paris and he's not in it, I don't believe. He may be in it in a supporting role, but I don't think so. I think he's not in it. Kind of like what Woody Allen did when he did Interiors after Annie Hall. And after that, Charlie Chaplin came back and continued to make movies that he wrote, directed, and starred in. But they started to take on um, more dramatic and nuanced, and they started taking real chances. And I think there's something interesting there about the artistic personality, which is if you do something really, really well, you just want to make sure that you don't have to repeat it so that you're not artistically being satisfied and challenged. I think there's something to that. Somebody we haven't talked about yet, a really famous stand-up comedian who went on to have a huge art house career, is Japanese filmmaker Abit Takeshi, Takeshi Kitano. A lot of people in the United States don't even know him as a stand-up comedian. They only know him as this Japanese art director of really violent films like Sonatine and Violent Cop. Yeah, and Kika Kikucho, I think, uh, which is sort of his, the kid. There's one where he plays him, like, it's really meta. It's multiple Takeshi's. I think it's just called Takeshi's. What's funny is that if you YouTube beat Takeshi, you can see his Japanese TV work, and it's really broad. It's as broad as Jim Carrey and In Living Color. Then you see his really violent Yakuza movies, and there's somebody, too, who just wanted to be like, hey, I'm a painter. I also am a writer. And what I've heard is that people in Japan were never able to take his movies seriously, which is why, weirdly, they're much more appreciated outside. Another comedian we haven't talked about who has a very famous unreleased serious movie that I would love to see is Jerry Lewis with The Day the Laughter Died, which Roberto Benigni actually, I don't want to say he remade it, but he took the concept and maybe made it palatable. This is a very famous, almost as famous or as famous as Orson Welles' The Other Side of the Wind, which now finally has gotten a release, you know, 40 years later. But Jerry Lewis made The Day the Laughter Died in the early 70s, and it was about a clown that went to a concentration camp. And the end of the film, supposedly, is the clown leading all the kids into the gas chamber so they can all be killed, basically. And this was, you know, Jerry Lewis is Jewish. This was a very personal movie to him. It was about the Holocaust. Certain people have seen it, like Harry Shearer, weirdly, The Voice and The Simpsons. And uh, Spinal Tap has seen the movie. He showed it to a number of people, but he never released it. And even after his passing, they haven't released it. And I don't know if it's that he felt he didn't nail it and he just doesn't want people to see it and he's embarrassed by it. He financed it himself. Supposedly, I read in the article that it will get a release in two years, but it won't be released to the public. Only a certain amount of people will be able to watch the picture. But Patton Oswalt actually got a hold of the script and do like a live play of it. But Jerry Lewis took it out because he doesn't want anyone to know about the film that exists. But in two years, certain people can watch the film and supposedly be seen, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, I loved, I'm i a Jerry Lewis fan. Me too. Yeah, I think Jerry Lewis is an artist. Absolutely. So I, even if it's a failure, I think it would be an interesting failure. Interesting, Roberto Benigni made a movie called Life is Beautiful that basically takes those themes of a clown who tries to get his kid through the concentration camps. It's done differently for sure, and it has a happy ending for the kid. So that may be, maybe Benini was like, maybe they all shouldn't die. <laughs> maybe they should live. There's a couple Robin Williams movies I've always liked that are sort of outside the usual 
purview when people talk about Robin Williams because most people go to like Dead Poet Society or uh, Goodwill Hunting. I really like this is kind of a comedy, but it's a very dark comedy is Bobcat Goldthwaite's World's Greatest Dad which I think is a legitimately great movie and is it's much more of a, again, is a comedy, but is a lot darker than usual. And then another one that's just a, a pure, I guess, horror movie is One Hour Photo, which is a really disturbing performance. And at one point he talks about a, a Neon Genesis Evangelion action figure. So what more do you need? He really, for a long time in American cinema, was the gold standard for the transition because he was able to go do comedies, and then sort of effortlessly take on a serious role. And he took on numerous serious roles, like Chris Nolan's Insomnia. He plays the killer. He has a great cameo in Kenneth Branagh's Dead Again. He sort of set a template for it. Well, stuff like I think about Will Ferrell's Stranger Than Fiction is kind of interesting. There's, I think there's also movies where the director and the casting director really understand that the picture needs a the certain charisma and energy that some comedians have and how to utilize that in relatively subject matter that is a little bit lighthearted in its comedy. Like Stranger Than Fiction is about Will Ferrell starts to hear his life narrated with the implication that it's coming to an end. And so he's trying to find the writer of the story that he can hear in his head. And it's, it's really interesting because with that type of subject matter, it's both serious, but also this kind of goofy premise I think about like Will Smith's sort of shift from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air that's all charisma and comedy acting, but with a lot of serious moments, and then his move into like Enemy of the State, and then of course his run of Men in Black, and his 2000s run of great drama stuff that he, well, good drama stuff that he was in. What you're talking about, Daniel, is interesting. Like Uncut Gems is a really good example because part of the reason that movie works is on paper the character Adam Sandler plays is kind of awful and despicable, but Adam Sandler has such a f like warm charisma, like comedy performer charisma to him that you can't help that. I, I think if a serious actor had played that role, you'd been like, ugh, this guy. But instead, you're just like, oh, Howie. Oh, my God. Why are you making these decisions? It's like this built-in empathy we have because they feel better than they are, are being portrayed on screen. I think a lot about Peter Sellers, who I associate with his incredible work in comedies. But then you have like Being There, which is kind of that same thing that is basically a drama with some lighthearted undertones. But the sort of actors that just shift between those mediums like that kind of confound me. To have both the comedy chops and the drama chops, which I think we often separate, is a really interesting. It was funny watching Punch Drunk Love again. This point has been made by other people, by you guys as well, but... In an interesting way, Punch Drunk Love and Uncut Gems are Adam Sandler comedies. I mean, the characters are Billy Madison and Happy Gilmore. Somehow the writer-directors found a way of taking the formula, which is an angry man-child who, like, has to overcome his anger issues or his child issues to accomplish something of importance. And they apply that to whether that was intentional or not. The funny thing watching Punch Drunk Love is there's a scene in there that really in the hands of other people, I think is a live wire act. And that's where he calls his sister from Hawaii to get Emily Watson's like room number, hotel number. And she won't do it. And he's like, just give me the number. I'm, I'll kill you. Okay. And he's like screaming at his <laughs> sister that he's going to kill her. He's like, why do you treat me this way? I don't deserve to be treated this way. And I think a brother shouting to his sister, I'm going to kill you. And the way you have to watch that scene, I don't know that many people could figure it out, but you get that these sisters so sit on 
Barry, Egan in that movie, they so sit on Barry and he can't assert himself that this is the moment that he's asserting himself way too much and he's kind of going crazy, but Sandler sells that scene. And I think that's an incredibly difficult scene to play personally. On the other end of things, I think it's interesting when dramatic actors step into comedies and maybe I don't know his entire filmography but Gene Hackman, when I think of him, I think of all like his entire run through his early career through like Bonnie and Clyde and French Connection conversation. And then he sort of, you know, chews the scenery and Superman. But then I also associate him so specifically with Royal Tenenbaums and that comedic performance, which is I think because it's such a straight laced performance on top of it is someone really working with sort of his, what makes him special as an actor. And I'd be curious to hear on the opposite how they feel. It's funny you mentioned that, Daniel, because Hackman has one of the greatest comedy cameos of all time. It's Edwin's got to know it. Is it uh, where he voices God? No, Young Frankenstein. Oh, oh true, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, he plays the blind guy in Young Frankenstein, and he's hilarious with Peter Boyle. The story I heard about that was that Hackman called Brooks, and he said, I will do anything in your next movie. No one ever gives me a comedy. And Mel Brooks was like, what? And Gene Hackman was like, I don't I'll work for scale, whatever. Just let me be in a Mel Brooks movie. And Mel Brooks came up. I mean, that, that part is actually in the original Frankenstein, but he gave him that part. You know, another really interesting guy who did comedy really, really well that you wouldn't necessarily think is Marlon Brando. And if you look at Brando in Guys and Dolls or The Freshman, he's pretty funny. I remember when Bridesmaids came out and because that was John Hamm's only real thing he had done at that point was Mad Men. And people were just like, man, this guy's really funny. He's admittedly was able to then like break out of that. I think I think more and more the way that Hollywood works, it doesn't pigeonhole people quite as much as I think people used to get pigeonholed. And so I think he was able to break out of that. Two, actually, it took them, I think, till mid-career to get people to give them comedies were uh, Meryl Streep and Robert De Niro, who really didn't start doing comedies until their 40s, 50s, and 60s. For whatever reason, no one was giving them comedies in the 70s and 80s. You're forgetting the 1982 comedy, the king of comedy. De Niro's great in that. It's like like black comedy realm. I mean, that's a great movie and a funny movie, but it's... It's an uber disturbing movie. I don't see it. I don't see it as a disturbing movie. <laughs> Edwin's Joker pill. <laughs> look, 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 man. The thing is, he knows what he's doing is wrong, but it's the like is the is only way to gain the showbiz, and he pays the consequences. <laughs> he spends years in jail, and the next thing you know, he becomes the most famous person in the world. And I think De Niro's performance in that movie is really great. And he's really freaking funny in the film. Edwin, I agree with all that. What's disturbing is, although Rupert Pupkin is mega disturbing, I find him very empathetic. What's disturbing is, in my opinion, is the movie's really far-seeing realization that celebrity would become everything to people. That's what's disturbing. I mean, celebrity... I think people who understand celebrity (laughs) would not wish it on their worst enemy. You know, like Leonardo DiCaprio talks about how he can't leave his house without three black SUVs following him. With people just... Brad Pitt has a method he doesn't share with anybody about how he's able to go out in public and he won't share with anyone how he does it. Mel Gibson had literally a Mission Impossible mask made that, like, he would put on in the 80s and 90s so he would look, like, different so that he could just go to a bar, I guess, and have beer. Maybe that wasn't the best thing for Mel Gibson. But I just think that what's disturbing about King Comedy is its realization that we'll sell our souls for celebrity, which means we'll literally give up on any existential meaning in our own lifetime. You don't find that disturbing, Edward? No. 
No. That, that's not the whole point of the picture, though. That's because the king of comedy is Edwin's future. <laughs> it is. I really think the day is going to come where Edwin is like, you know how everything consolidates? He'll just be the only celebrity of note on television. And then you'll blackball me from any media, Edwin, as punishment. You won't let me do any movies. You won't let me do any TV. Secret Movie Club will become a genuine secret, and we have to barricade it to keep him out. But Edwin will have so much money, he'll keep smoking us out with rats and, like, informers. The year is 20XX. Movies are outlawed. (laughs) What just came to me when I'm thinking that you're talking about mid-career shifts, I think my favorite example from recent years is Ryan Gosling and uh, Russell Crowe and The Nice Guys. I honestly was not a Russell Crowe fan, and that movie changed my entire opinion, and I've since gone back to correct my wrongs. And Ryan Gosling's always been a funny guy. I think he's really good in Crazy Stupid Love, but that really cemented that if they could, you know, we get sequels and remakes, but let me get an update on what those two were doing every five years, and that's the franchise I want. I'm not the biggest fan of The Nice Guys. I like it. I don't love it. You go to hell. Go to hell, Craig. I know. Go to hell. If the devil's listening, Edwin, then I'm going to be consigned there immediately good. maybe before i die if the devil's taking notes he's gonna look at how many people have been asked to go to hell and he's gonna look at my name and he's like well it's just one guy who wants this guy now <laughs> but he's asked for it a million times i think ryan gosling's a revelation in the nice guys about how funny he is and i think russell crowe being willing to make fun of himself i think one of the key things about good comedy is being willing to make fun of yourself and i think one of the reasons why a lot of people can't do comedy is maybe their self-consciousness about how they're going to come off. Whereas I think a real good comedian, that can't be what it's about. Like you have to be willing to totally do, I mean, you know, look at Sasha Baron Cohen or, you know, any of the more recent comedians. I mean, they take crazy risks. It's like a lot of action stars who will have like in their contracts that they can't lose a fight or something as opposed to, um, I have no idea if he has something similar, but I've been loving the new Peacemaker show with John Cena and the lead. And he's been hilarious in it. And, you know, the show is definitely not a vanity project. It puts him into weird situations a lot. <laughs> in doing my research weirdly for Pain and Gain, the Michael Bay movie, I learned, probably not, not a surprise, that Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, was hugely nervous about doing that role. And he was really concerned about, you know, being this Bible-loving, coke-addicted kind of meathead And Michael Bay just being like, no, no, it's a perfect world. And I think that Dwayne Johnson's probably the best thing. And I enjoyed Pain and Gain. But I think his willingness to make fun of himself in that way and play a part like that went a long way to making the movie sort of fascinating to watch. And, you know, he really hasn't done that since, I don't think. After all that, it's been like stuff he's known for. That movie is like a revelation for him because Pain and Gain is probably... Dwayne Johnson's best role. He done like Southland Tales before that, I think too. And on his way up. On his way up, he was doing kind of riskier stuff. But since he's been at the top, he's pretty much just taken kind of movie star roles, which is disappointing because I think he's got. I think like a lot of wrestlers, he's got that interesting mix of charisma where they do have movie star charisma, but they also clearly have a lot of talent in terms of performance for very specific types of roles. When I was in college, I had this screenwriting substitute. Actually, uh, he was just there for a month. I can't remember why our teacher wasn't able to be, but this gentleman subbed for about two or three classes. And he said that if you wanted to learn the fundamentals and basics of drama, you should just watch American wrestling. And I thought that was a really great observation. And I actually have thought, Connor, that wrestlers often make great 
performers in cinema because they understand the fundamentals of drama in a way that weirdly maybe even trained actors don't get because a lot of times wrestlers are writing their own material and figuring out the storylines yeah and and they have the live feedback right there <laughs> they're getting like instantaneous feedback from the stadium well i was going to mention just because of his passing this week louis anderson the comedian in talking about comedians and drama there was this show from a few years back called baskets starring zach galifianakis and in the show louis played zach and the twin brother in the show's mother and it was this dark comedy. So it was this dramatic piece mixed with this funny piece. But he, I'd been watching interviews with him and he based that entire role around his mom. And he basically had this idea of being a character that the joke was sort of who was playing it. And then it kind of became, no, the he wants to, as an actor, sort of inhabit the person he saw in his mother and the way that she was. It was really interesting, well-spoken stuff about that. But I, in terms of performances in the comedy drama space, I think Louis Anderson and Baskets is a really interesting look at someone who's working in both worlds and is, is worth a watch if you've never checked it out before. Serious stuff. <laughs> Moving on, pop culture and final thoughts. Edwin. Saw Nightmare Alley on 35. Oh, what's it, the black and white version or the color version? Black and white version. I liked it. I really liked it. It's it nice to know that Del Toro made like a very humanist movie. The first thing he's done in his career, like most of the movies have been action, fantasy, you know, stuff like that. Horror. And this movie, it, it takes that out, and it, it's a really fine picture, which i never seen in the original movie, but uh, now I will. And it's good. Bradley Cooper, whoo, kind of makes me want to wear a fedora hat now, too. Yeah. Don't. And I will, I'm going to now. I might, I might consider it. But uh, Nightmare Alley was great. I got the new Blu-rays. I got John Landis' directorial debut picture, uh, Schlock, which is uh, hilarious. I loved it. And then I got John uh, Milius's picture, uh, Dillinger, which is very violent. Love it very much. Roaring Oates kicks ass again from the grave by shooting up a bunch of people. I got a short, got a premiere on Wednesday too, so thanks, Craig. Edwin Short is an open mic shorts night. Yeah, yeah, I'm uh, moving up in the world. Uh, I've been in Texas this last week, so I was hanging out. I got some permanent crowns put in. So that was fun. But yeah, you can find me at twitch.tv slash Connor Cruz. I have been overwhelmingly busy, so I haven't had a ton of media to catch up on. But I did watch two things in the last week, one of which was Ryusuke Hamaguchi's Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy. He also directed Drive My Car, which is my favorite movie of last year. And then a few months later dropped this, which is like the ultimate mic drop. This three short film anthology that sort of intertwines about kind of fate and friendships and connections. And it's it's very, very, very good. And then I revisited one of my favorite movies. I've now added it to the... It was a movie that I, I, I often quote in the pantheon of. I saw it in theaters when it came out and I was so taken with it when I left the theater that I went back in to see it again. And it was Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. The, uh, I think it's Tomas... Alfredson's from like 2011. It has an insane cast of British actors who are all either were famous or on the up and up. It's like Gary Oldman, Colin Firth, Tom Hardy, John Hurt, Toby Jones, Mark Strong, Benedict Cumberbatch, to name a few. And it is, we just screened Primer. And I think it's very much like Primer where it refuses to spoon feed you anything. If you don't give it 100% of your attention and you lose your way, it is your fault. It doesn't flash back to give you a catch-up moment. It doesn't re-explain things. The mystery plays out and you as the audience also have to pay attention to uncover it. And I think it's just incredible. It's also gorgeous. And I, I, I wonder if a 35 exists of it because it is a beautiful movie. I think it's um, Hoyt Van Hodema 
And I would love to see that on the big screen again someday. You know, when I saw Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, I had not read the book nor seen the famous Alec Guinness miniseries, which would be great to watch because he, Alec Guinness, played Smiley in the 70s, I think, or the early 80s. And I loved it, like you, Daniel. But I totally missed the gay love story subtext the first time I saw it. And so I came out of the theater talking about this and that. And my buddy, who's much smarter than I am and sharper and had read the book, he was like, Craig, that whole subplot was because they were in love. And I was like, oh, I missed that. And then I watched it again, and it's totally there. It's clearly there. But just to your density, Daniel, of not being spoon-fed, I think in an American movie it might have been spoon-fed to you. And in this film, you, you had to really be looking at and probably be more sophisticated than I am. But then I understood, and I was like, oh, that makes it much more emotionally devastating. And my friend was like, that's the point, Craig. And I was like, oh. I've been going down all these rabbit holes lately, like I've been telling people Stephen Sondheim this past weekend, Lauren Michaels. But last week, it was the greatest classical pieces of the 21st century, at least according to people. Like, I had to read some articles and make some notes. And I love, like a lot of people, Mozart and Bach and Beethoven, Stravinsky, Prokofiev. And I was just thinking, but, you know, people have been writing music since then. And in fact, I think filmmakers, you get that thing sometimes where everyone's just listening to the things people have already listened to. And so the mic drops and the cues and everything are just things that people have been using for 50 or 60 years. And I've known of this composer, a very famous composer by the name of John Adams, but I uh, listened to his shaker loops and he did this three-part light over water and it was a revelation to me. And it wasn't just Philip Glassy. I think sometimes I did listen to some of the other things people recommended. It was minimalist and Philip Glassy. And I was like, look, I, I love it. It's great. But it's not sort of changing the way I hear music. But the John Adams stuff, I was like, wow. And then there was this piece written by this woman. Carolyn Shaw did this piece from 2013 called The Partita, which was she has like an eight-person choir, and she just wrote it for them, and it's all vocal. It wasn't my favorite of the things I heard, but it was so unique and so innovative, and they were doing things with their voices that were so inspiring. I just want to shout out to people that I'm glad I did it because if you want to grow as a movie maker or an artist, I think you've always got to be Okay, what else is out there? What new is out there? What are people doing? Even if you don't respond to it, it's inspiring. It'll give you ideas. So that's my shout out. As always, I want to thank everybody. Secret Movie Club Podcast 90 is actually going to be about short films because we will have just done our open mic short night parts one and two. We'll be talking about great short filmmakers throughout cinema. One of my favorite filmmakers of all time is Stan Brackage. In fact, in my top 10 movies of all time, is a 28-minute short he made called The Act of Seeing With One's Own Eyes. But I'll talk about that next week. We'll talk about maybe shorts we've made. We'll talk about short movie makers that we love, short films we love. As always, I want to thank Chief Creative Content Officer Connor Lloyd Cruz. As always, just go to secretmovieclub.com to see what we're doing, everything we're showing. And uh, if you wanted tonight, join us. I always find these movies inspiring. Bonnie and Clyde and Night Moves, two movies by Arthur Penn. You just feel the 1960s and the 1970s in those movies. You just watch them, and I think they're great movies for now because I want another American Renaissance. And there's much more. You'll hear about it. We'll go on. All right, guys, have a great week. Bye. Bye. I love you, Martha, Craigie, Carmen, Pammy. What he said. You love my family, too. <laughs> I mean, I spend the night in your house, so, you know. Doing one night, you spend 
you spent several nights. My favorite was how you never called my son by name. You just called him kid the whole What's time. What's wrong with that? It was like he was like your, you were a gumshoe and he was your assistant. You're like, look at kid. Yeah, that, that's, that, that's how it should be.